Our reading this morning comes from the book of Les Miserables, uh, chapter 1. Uh, last Sunday and I, uh, Karen, uh, K- Karen and myself watched uh, the movie. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Uh, Sarah went to bed early. She wasn't interested in a movie where everybody just sings and there's no spoken dialogue whatsoever. I don't know how many of you have seen the stage play, read the book perhaps, um, or watched the film. It's really remarkable. Uh, the music is just so, so soul-stirring. Uh, the story and the themes are deeply moving. Very thoughtful look into themes like grace and law and redemption and, and heaven. And I'd like to begin this morning by watching a very famous song from the film, I Dreamed a Dream. Uh, the song is sung by a character called Fantine, who's played by Anne Hathaway in the movie. And it's a very moving song, particularly when you understand the background to the song. So let me just give you that. As, as a teenager, uh, Fantine is seduced by a wealthy student named Felix, and she falls pregnant, giving birth to a daughter, Cosette. And Felix doesn't marry Fantine. He abandons her and Cosette even though Fantine deeply loves him. And so she has to leave Cosette with a very disreputable couple who own an inn while she goes off to work at a factory. And this couple squeeze her for every cent they can get. They tell her the child is sick and they get money so that Fantine is destitute. Uh, And in the movie, Fantine sings this song just after she's been fired from the factory because they found out about her illegitimate daughter. She's desperate for money, She's already sold her hair and two of her teeth. Uh, She's so desperate that she's begun to work as a prostitute. And she sings this song after her first night as a prostitute, after she's hit rock bottom. So let's see if we can see that. Is 
It's going to take us a while to recover from that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can never listen to that song without getting mildly choked up because I think that all of us have regrets. Uh, there are things in my life which I wish I'd done or wish I hadn't done. All of us experience that. And perhaps there might even be someone here this morning who's a lot closer to Fantine, that you feel you've hit rock bottom that the reality of your life has killed the dreams that you had for yourself. Well, let's move on real quickly then and read our passage of Scripture this morning, Isaiah 61, which is such a comforting contrast to the words that we've just heard. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. 
And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. And their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And this is God's word. (laughs) So just as the song, I dreamed a dream, becomes more meaningful when you understand its context, so Isaiah 61 becomes a lot more meaningful when you understand it in its context too. And there are three contexts which we need to bear in mind to understand this chapter. And the first is Israel's history as a nation. You know, if ever there was a nation whose life had killed the dream they dreamed, it's the nation of Israel as we find them in Isaiah 61. Everything had started so well. God had carefully crafted this nation through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He'd rescued them out of Egypt. He'd given them his laws in fire and thunder at Mount Sinai. He'd led them into the land of Canaan, miraculously defeating their enemies. He'd established them in the land. He'd given them good kings, David and Solomon. But God's people had constantly and consistently rejected God to the point where he allowed their enemies to come and take them off as slaves to a foreign land, the land of Babylon. So those are the facts of what has taken place. It's interesting, though, that in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, God describes Israel's history in story form, a story not very dissimilar to the story of Fantine, although in this story, Israel is far more culpable than Fantine. Fantine passively drifted into the life that she led. Uh, Israel made conscious decisions. But let me read you a slightly edited version of Ezekiel 16 for you. Uh, the, The rabbis suggested that Ezekiel 16 couldn't be read by Jewish men younger than the age of 30. So this is a slightly edited version. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. On the day that you were born, no one cared about you. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field and left to die. But I came by and saw you there, helplessly kicking about. And as you lay there, I said, live. And I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel, although you were still naked. Later, when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. 
I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk, beautifully embroidered, and sandals made of fine leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklaces, earrings for your ears, a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. You ate the finest foods, choice flour, honey, olive oil. You became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. Your fame spread throughout the world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the Sovereign Lord. But you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. You used the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols where you played the prostitute. You took the very jewels and gold and silver ornaments I'd given you and made statues of men and worshipped them. You used the beautifully embroidered clothes I gave you to dress your idols. And then you used my special oil and my incense to worship them. Then you took your sons and daughters, the children you'd borne me, and sacrificed them to your gods. Was your prostitution not enough? Must you also slaughter my children by sacrificing them to idols? In all your years of adultery and detestable sin, you've not once remembered the days long ago when you lay naked in a field. What a sick heart you have, says the Sovereign Lord, to do such things such as these. Therefore, you prostitute, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'll give you to these many nations who are your lovers, and they will destroy you. They will knock down your pagan shrines and the altars to your idols. They will strip you and take your beautiful jewels, leaving you stark naked. They will band together in a mob and burn your homes and punish you. And that's what's happened. God's people are prisoners of war in Babylon. Their cities are destroyed. Their temple is in ruins. And they wonder whether God could ever forgive them or love them again. That's the context of uh, Israel's history. Secondly, we need to understand this chapter in the light of the chapters surrounding it. So God's people are in exile, and yet God still says to them, I still want righteousness from you. He says to his people, maintain justice, do what is right. But God's people are both unwilling and unable to do what God asks them to do. Chapter 59 But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. And so God himself decides to do something about the situation. Chapter 59. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And now in chapter 61, then, we read about God's servant, his anointed one, who will do for God's people what they cannot do for themselves. And thirdly, we best understand Isaiah 61 in the context of the whole of salvation history as it's recorded in the Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the introduction to her children's Bible, 
all the stories in the Bible are telling the one big story, the story of how God loves his children and has come personally to rescue them. And so Isaiah 61 is probably familiar to us from the New Testament. Uh, Luke presents this as being Jesus' text for his very first sermon. Let me read to you what Luke says. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a phenomenal statement. Jesus takes a passage of scripture that for the last 500 years has been interpreted to refer to God's anointed one, the Messiah, and Jesus says, I am him. This is what I've come to do. So with all of that background in mind, let's look at this picture of what Isaiah says Jesus, as God's anointed one, has come to do for his people, for all the Fantines who have ever lived, for you, for me this morning. There's a tremendous amount to look at when you study these verses, but we'll just pick out a few things. Jesus has come firstly to proclaim good news to the poor. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. As Jesus said later in his ministry, he hasn't come for those who think they are healthy, but for those who know they are sick. He hasn't come to announce good news to those who think they are okay, to those who are self-satisfied, to those who are comfortable, to those who feel they are in control. He's come for those who are in deep trouble. Blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit, Jesus said. The humble, the needy, the afflicted, those who have been passed over, the outcasts who realize that they desperately need a savior. Jesus hasn't come for good, nice church people. Although he loves them, sadly, often they're too smug to recognize their need. Jesus has come for the fantines of this world. In the words of one Bible commentator, Jesus has come to those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his just vengeance meted out against those who've misused them. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. That's you this morning. Jesus wants to speak his good news into your situation. And notice, secondly, that Jesus doesn't just fling good words at the poor. Be warm, clothed, fed, cheer up. Jesus rolls up his sleeves and gets involved. He actively binds up the brokenhearted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. 
The brokenhearted aren't those who have just had terrible life experiences, although, of course, Christ comforts us in those. But we read on a little bit in verse 2. We see, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's these who have been broken over their sin, grieved over what they've done to God. Can God forgive us? Will he take me in when he knows what I've been doing? and thinking, and saying. And the answer here is yes. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thirdly, Jesus has come to set captives free. Verse 1, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. And this proclamation here, it's it's a judicial pronouncement It's not just telling the captives that they are free. He's actively releasing them in what he says. You know, only a king who's greater than the kings who have people in captive can make such an announcement. Jesus is is acting here as a judge who says, I set you free. His, his, His very words accomplish what it is he says. Now, in Isaiah's time, that that meant physical release from Babylon. But but Jesus sees us as prisoners in another sense. And perhaps this morning you understand something of what it means to be captured. You're you're stuck in something. You're addicted to something. And before you think, well, I'm so glad I don't fall into that category, listen to these words of the journalist Malcolm Mugridge, who was an atheist before coming to Christ. He once said this, In the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the people of his time, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if I, the son, set you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus has come to cancel our debts, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor probably refers to a law that you get in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 25. It was a law for the land of Israel, and it said that every 50th year, all slaves were to be set free, all debts were to be canceled, all land that had been sold had to revert back to its original owner. It would be like having all of your credit cards paid off, your mortgage canceled, your uh, uh, car loan canceled, all your debts settled. And this year of Jubilee is just a a wonderful picture of what God does for us in Christ Jesus. That Christ frees us from our bondage to sin. He cancels the debt of our sin. Now we have to ask the question, how can God do that? How can a holy God accept people in spite of their sin? Well, it's because of something else we saw that God's servant, the anointed one, does. Back in Isaiah 58. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
It's not that God cancels our debt, pretends it doesn't matter. Instead, he himself pays for it through the death of Jesus. And it's not just that negatively God saves us from sin and slavery and despair, but positively he restores us. There's restoration in verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. God doesn't just sort of forgive our sin and then puts up with us. He uses us for his glory. Verse 3, they'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And, And linked to that then, there's mission. Our lives are transformed and restored and used by God to change others. Verses 6 and 9, you'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Some of us know people whose lives have been completely turned around. Think of the Samaritan woman, the five-time divorcee who's just living with man number six, and she meets Jesus. And we read that after that encounter, she leaves her water jar, she goes running back to the village, and she tells everyone, come see a man who told me everything about myself. And that whole village is transformed. She goes from being someone who is at life's end to being used by God. Or the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 4, Uh, who Jesus heals, and he wants to get into the boat and go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go back home and tell everyone the difference God has made in your life. Last year on the Alpha course, there was a a wonderful testimony of a man who uh, had been so violent, so animalistic in his behavior, that his own mother said to him one day, you are evil. She wanted nothing to do with him. He ended up in prison. Uh, He started a riot there. He was considered one of the most uh, violent prisoners there, most dangerous. They'd feed him by opening his cell door only when there were six officers around to make sure he behaved. In prison, he went on an alpha course and there met Jesus. And his life was radically changed to the point where he's a chaplain in the prison helping young offenders because he knows exactly where they are. It's not just that Jesus covers our sins and then says, okay, I'll put up with you, but I'll concentrate on my more good children over here. Not at all. Our life becomes a joy to ourselves and a blessing to others. And then there's an eternal hope and a future as well. It's quite interesting that when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, he ends with the first part of verse 2. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor... And he stops there. He leaves out, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Is it because Jesus is just a lot nicer than the Old Testament God who's angry? Not at all. It's just that Jesus made a distinction between his first coming and his second coming. John 3.17, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But in chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. Those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So there is a day coming 
when God will sort everything out. It's vital that we know that. We see it in verse 8. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, pardon me, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. So while we receive forgiveness, while we receive reconciliation, while we receive restoration and mission in this life, there is a future hope and a future glory, a time where there is no more sickness or death or crying because God will finally and decisively deal with evil and will destroy it forever. Same thought is there in verse 7, and everlasting joy will be yours. Sure, what, what is our response to God's word this morning? Two main responses. Firstly, if you've never received all of this for yourself personally, I want to urge you to accept all that Jesus says he will do in this passage and more. And if you'd like to pray with someone after the service, I invite you to make your way to the front afterwards and we'd love to pray with you and allow you to experience this. But there's a second response to this too. It's a very important one. It's the response uh, of the anonymous speaker in verses 10 and 11. This person, having heard all that God is going to do, says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. We're encouraged to delight and rejoice in God and in his righteousness. And this is an astounding picture. God has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. This means so much more to us who live this side of the cross. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5 last week, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So two things happen on the cross, as we've seen even in this passage. Jesus takes our sin, but then he imputes his righteousness to us. He no longer sees my sin, he sees Christ's righteousness. As Paul says in Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that's got a number of practical implications and applications to our lives. I'm just going to mention them briefly. Uh, I've been listening to Pastor Timothy Keller this week, uh, and some of this comes from him. Just in case you ever listen to Tim Keller and think, wow, Tim Keller's quoting Andrew. It's uh, the other way around. <laughs> These concepts are, are really revolutionary, though. I hope they're going to be helpful to us. Uh, it's got implications for our identity, how we see ourselves. I'm so glad Karen isn't here this morning. I won't have to pay her 10 rand afterwards now. Uh, she's in matric this year, and at the moment, Pinans High School is abuzz with matric dance fever, even though we're five months away from the event. Who is going to be taking whom to the dance? And as a dad, I've been a little bit concerned about this, and so I took her out for a milkshake this week to discuss the situation. 
And uh, I discovered she's actually uh, far more sensible than I thought. Uh, at one point, she told me uh, of, of, of one of her heroines, a Christian uh, singer called Jamie Grace, who said that she didn't need some random teenager to tell her who she is as a person. She can trust what God says about her as a person. She's created by Christ, redeemed by Christ. That's far more important to her than what some random, pimply 16-year-old teenage boy might think. <laughs> Our identity isn't in what others think about us. We are clothed in God's righteousness. So very practically, if someone pays you a compliment, they come up and say, well done, you did a good job. It's nice to hear that. Hopefully it's true. But I don't have to base my identity or my sense of worth on those compliments if I were to do nice things for the rest of my life, my niceness wouldn't make me acceptable to God. Or the opposite extreme, someone accuses me of doing something wrong. They yell at me. They're nasty. And maybe what they say is untrue. You know, at that moment, I can say to myself, well, he's wrong about that. But boy, if he knew some of the other sinful things in my life, I'm sure not going to tell him, but, but God knows so how can I be angry about what he said and get myself into a huff? How can I say, how dare you accuse me of doing something like that when I know full well that there are other times when I've deeply hurt God and deeply hurt others and I've got away with it? You know, being falsely accused of something over here um, is just uh, make, make or rather being, being falsely accused for something that I've done over here makes up for all of those times where I've done something really bad over there and got away with it without anyone seeing. I can try and set the record straight if I think it's necessary, but I don't have to defend myself in that situation as if my whole identity were tied to me being right. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Or maybe the person is right. I have been unthinking, unfeeling, bigoted, racist, downright sinful, whatever. I say to myself in those situations, Lord, I'm sorry. I recognize I was uncaring, unfeeling. Lord Jesus, you took every evil thought, every evil deed, every evil word upon yourself on the cross, and you died for it. Thank you. Lord Jesus, when you were on earth, you always got it right. You were always kind, always considerate, always loving. My Father, I thank you that you take Jesus' perfect record and you apply it to my life. You call me holy and dearly loved. Help me to live up to that picture that you have of me. We've kind of moved into this area already, but secondly, understanding what it means to be clothed in God's righteousness helps me when I sin. There are days that are good, aren't there? Let's say Tuesday was a good day this week. You, you got up early on a morning. You had a quiet time. Uh, you were aware of God's presence through the day. Perhaps you listened to some Christian music in the car, and you really felt your heart connect with God in worship. Uh, you let other drivers in front of you. You didn't yell at any taxi drivers. Uh, you spent time with your children and with your wife or husband, and you feel pretty good. You've had a good day. There are other days when you've blown it. Let's say Friday was a bad day. You woke up late. You didn't read God's word. You didn't acknowledge him during the day. In fact, halfway through the day, you fell into one of those sins that always trips you up. Anger, malice, drunkenness, pornography, greed, whatever. 
And what happens? You feel terrible. You spend the next five days kind of avoiding God. You, you don't talk to Him. You skip church. You try and keep a low profile. You do a, a few good things over the next few days. After a day or two, you start to read a little bit of the Bible. Uh, you offer up a cautious prayer. And after about six days, you feel better enough to approach God and you ask Him for His guidance and His help. According to what we've seen here, our ability to approach God in prayer has absolutely nothing to do with whether it's Tuesday or Friday and whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and he prays for us. What does he pray? Does he look at me on Friday and say, Father, I see what Andrew has done. He's messed up. He hasn't loved you with his whole heart. He hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. But have mercy on him. No, Jesus doesn't ask for mercy. He asks for justice. He says, Father, your law demands justice. Your law demands payment. The wages of sin is death. Andrew deserves payment. Here it is. I've paid for it in blood and death. And because no one can ask for two payments for the same debt, I ask for justice. I ask on the basis of my payment that you acquit Andrew, that you declare him not guilty. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, Cain kills Abel, and God says Abel's blood cries out. It cries out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for acquittal for you and for me. And finally then, understanding what it means to be clothed in God's righteousness has implications for my good works. We spoke about this last week. I won't go into it in detail. But as we saw last week then, our good works don't make us right with God. Things like Bible reading and prayer and going to church and worshiping and fasting and coming to a prayer breakfast, all good things unless we think of those as making us right with God. Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts, our good things, are like filthy rags. When we say to God, you should accept me because I go to church and I read my Bible and I do good things, those righteous acts are like filthy rags in comparison to what really makes me right with God, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. In comparison to that, how can I possibly commend myself to God? As a sinner, even my best prayers, my best preaching, my best fasting is tainted with impure thoughts and motives. And so as the old hymn puts it, my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And so understanding what it means to be clothed in God's righteousness helps me with my identity, with my sin, with my so-called good works. But please note that the writer of Isaiah doesn't delight in this gift of righteousness. Rather, he delights in the giver. There's a, a song called The Sands of Time. I think it's actually a hymn. It, it has these lines. The bride eyes not her garments but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory, 
of, Emmanuel, of Emmanuel's land. I think it's based on, on that, that last verse that we see here. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. We don't merely rejoice in what God has given us this morning, forgiveness of sin, his righteousness. We delight ourselves in him. And delighting in the Lord means cultivating a genuine, honest friendship with him. And paradoxically, that's done, as we saw last week, through regular habits like worshiping with God's people, reading God's word, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, listening to worship music, studying, not in order to commend myself to God, but to delight in him and to get to know him. It's a wonderful paradox that we get to know God through something that could uh, become harmful to us. But it's just so good to know that this morning, uh, my right relationship with God doesn't hang on something as flimsy as my good works, but, finish it, but relies wholly on Jesus' finished work for us. Let's pray together.